So far we've looked at the first three psalms, and we will look at the fourth psalm this evening. And we've done it in alphabetical, or excuse me, numeric order so far, but actually what I'm doing, and, and you're going to see this, is not going to be numeric throughout the entire series of psalms, um, but instead we're going to be taking a sampling of the various types of psalms. And when we first started looking at the psalms, um, I mentioned that there are six types. The first is called the lament psalm. That is a time when the psalmist goes from mourning or sorrow to trusting in God. And then there are praise psalms, kingship psalms, thanksgiving psalms, wisdom psalms, and trust psalms. And so far we've looked at three different kinds of psalms. Psalm 1 was a wisdom psalm. Psalm 2 was a kingship psalm. That was a uh, a praise and honor of the king. And then Psalm 3 was a lament psalm. It went from uh, mourning to trust. And this one here that we're going to look at tonight is another lament psalm. So really two weeks in a row we're looking at a lament or a sorrowful psalm. Psalm. And when what you'll find is that during this first series of uh, of our look at the psalms, we're going to look at 16 psalms altogether, and um, about half of them are lament psalms. And the reason that I'm taking so many in the first 16, uh, the first 16 psalms that we're sampling, is because if you look at the entire book of psalms, you're going to find that almost half of those are lament psalms. That many times the psalmist is crying out to God because of some trouble, and then turning to trust. And so. The importance of this, the reason we need to understand the Psalms in this light is because it helps us to see when we're reading through them what's going on and uh, so that we can see also how we can better pray to God because these are often set in the, the context of prayers to God. Specifically, a lament psalm, as I've mentioned before, goes from morning to trust. Not morning as opposed to evening, but sorrow and then moves to trust. At the beginning, you see this psalmist who's sorrowful for something that has happened. Perhaps he's away from the, the tabernacle, or perhaps he, he has his enemies that are closing in on him. And then at the end, by the end, he turns into trusting God. And this type of psalm is made up of three main parts. First, there is a cry for help because of some sort of trouble. There's a cry for help because of some sort of trouble. Then secondly, there's a description of the trouble. And then finally, there is a conclusion of an expression or confidence and commitment in God. And we'll see the same thing here in this psalm. Like the last psalm, this psalm is also uh, said to be written by David. If you look in the superscription there, uh, just below the identification of the psalm number. And uh, so, Psalm of David... And a lament psalm, I'm telling you. And uh, So let's look at this psalm together, read it, and then we'll uh, break it down verse by verse. Alright? This is the Word of God. Psalm 4, 1. Answer me when I call, O God, of my righteousness. You have relieved me in my distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. O sons of men, how long will my honor become a reproach? How long will you love what is worthless and name it deception? But know that the Lord has set apart the godly man for Himself. The Lord hears when I call to Him. 
Tremble and do not sin. Meditate in your heart upon your bed and be still. Offer the sacrifices of righteousness and trust in the Lord. Many are saying, Who will show us any good? Lift up the light of your countenance upon us, O Lord. You have put gladness in my heart more than when their grain and new wine abound. In peace, I will both lie down and sleep for you alone, O Lord. Make me to dwell in safety. David here again is sorrowful because of the attack, this case a verbal attack from his enemies. We don't have any context uh, as to when this happened. We don't know what part of David's life this happened. But but what we can tell from the text is that God does not abandon His people. And because He doesn't, we can confidently go to Him. We can confidently take refuge in Him, specifically through prayer. Because God does not abandon His people, we can confidently take refuge in Him. First, in verse 1, we see that God can relieve the believer's trouble. God can relieve the believer's trouble. The first place to turn in times of trouble must be to God. We will see this trouble that he explained. He's going to give the description of it in verses 2 and 3. But before we do... David begins with his confidence in what God has done in the past. Look at verse 1. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have relieved me in my distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. So the address that he he brings before his, his father, before God, is you have relieved my distress. And so I'm calling out to you in confidence. You will answer me when I call. You will be gracious to me and you will hear my prayer. Why? Because I've seen you do it. See that middle line? You have relieved me in my distress. Aren't you thankful that God answers us when we call? Of course, He doesn't answer us always the way that we want Him to answer, but He answers us. He responds to us. He doesn't ignore us. God is there listening and wanting to respond. And so we ought to come to God with an attitude of praise and thanksgiving for what He has done. Look at the first line again. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. Now the New International Version translates this, my righteous God. And that could be a, a, a valid explanation or a valid translation of the, the original Hebrew there. And that would be an appropriate way to describe God, that He is a righteous God, that He is the righteous God. But more likely, David is saying, you are the God who has rendered me as righteous. You have, you are the God who has declared me to be righteous. righteous. You, have, you are the God who has made me righteous. And so he cries out to God because what He has done. You have relieved me in my distress. David says in the second line, when I was in trouble before... You know who was there to rescue me? It was you, God. You were there. And so I call to you again. I plead for your help. When you have seen God work, and when you reflect on that, it ought to give you greater confidence to go to Him again. It ought to give you greater confidence to go to Him more fervently. Have you seen God work before? through your prayers, has God responded to you in times of trouble? Do you see God as the one who has made you righteous? Do you recognize your position 
before God is was uh, a result of something outside of you. That it was something that God did for you. Do you see God as the one who has made you righteous? Have, has He relieved you from your distress at some point in your life? And if you have seen God work in that way, that should give you greater confidence. Don't you want to see Him work in that way again? Don't you want to see Him respond to your trouble now? And if you haven't seen that, if you haven't experienced God responding to you in times of prayer, then what I would suggest to you is, is to take, uh, take a lesson from David. Watch what God has done for David. There's nothing special about David. Okay? He's human just like we are. He was failing often just like we do. And yet God responded to him because he actually prayed to him. And so take a lesson from David. Watch what God will do and He has done to David. And then, and then uh, go to God yourself. And start building your own case history of how God has responded to you. Sometimes the problem for us is that we don't record the things that God has done. Where God has responded to our prayers. We don't record that. And so when it comes to another time of trouble, we forget that God has spared us before. He had rescued us from some trouble before. And uh, and uh, part of the, the value of the Scriptures is that it records for us the way in which God has responded to His people. And we can go back to that over and over again and see that God is a faithful God, that God continually responds to His people, and we ought to do the same. So, God can relieve the believer's Trouble, verse 1. Verses 2 through 5. Believers have confidence in God despite enemy attacks. Believers have confidence in God despite enemy attacks. The, the enemies are identified here in the first line of verse 2. O sons of men, or literally sons of man. The, the word man there is, is singular. Sons of man. So it could be referring, as many scholars say, to the social elites within David's society. The social elites are, are the ones who are attacking. And what are they doing? Well, David tells us really if we pull it out of these questions that he asks them in verse 2. How, he asks three questions. How long will my honor become a reproach? Then, how long will you love what is worthless? And then we could almost make a third one. How long will you aim at deception? So, first, how this is David's response to their attacks. How long will my honor become reproach? These are three cynical uh, questions that are directed probably not at David, but at God. How long will you uh, how long will my honor become reproach? This is seen more clearly in the next line of verse two. How long will you love what is worthless? We could say, How long could you will you love these false gods? We'll get to that here in just a second. But I would suggest to you that these cynical questions on the part of these sons of man are actually directed at God. David's concern is not that his own honor is being um defied or or um marginalized, but rather that God's is. He's concerned about God's honor. How long will you allow God's honor, the, the honor that God has bestowed on me and the, the honor that is due to Him, how long will you allow that to go on and become a reproach to you? 
Next, how long will you love what is worthless? Verse 2. How long will you love what is worthless? David's concern is, yes, for his own life and well-being, but ultimately for God's well-being. Not because God can't take care of Himself, but for His honor, His glory. And his concern, David's, is, is that they're not loving what is most worthy to be loved. Perhaps they're loving false gods or godless pleasures. Whatever the case is, they are loving something, exalting something above the Almighty God who deserves our, our praise, our worship. And they're putting that in its place. They're putting this godless pleasure or these false gods in God's place. How long will you do this, David says. And then thirdly, how long will you aim at deception? Apparently, these opponents of David and God were lobbying false claims against David and his God. And so he's saying, how long are you going to continue to deceive? Stop deceiving others and yourself. God ultimately cannot be deceived. And so this is kind of David's, we could say, his evangelistic sermon to these scoffers. One of the early church fathers, Chrysostom, said that if he could preach any verse, if he had the entire world as his audience, and he could preach any verse to them, this would be the verse. How long will you love what is worthless? How long will you aim at deception? Yet David, despite their false claims, despite their pursuit of false gods, godless pleasures, worthless things. Notice David's confidence, verse 3. But know, okay, talking to these scoffers, know that the Lord has set apart the godly man for Himself. The Lord hears when I call to Him. David saying to them, you may not see the value in serving God. You may not see why a person would trust in God. You, you may not see why I do the things that I do. But know this, God knows His people and He responds to them. Do you see that in verse 3? God knows the godly man. He the, Know that the Lord has set apart, He's he set him aside, He's made him to be holy. That's the idea of, of separation. He's set him apart for God's purposes. You think pursuing these worthless things is the best? Well, what I'm telling you is that God knows those who follow Him and He responds to them. Look at the last part of verse 3. The Lord hears when I call to Him. What I am doing in your mind may be worthless, may be futile in your mind, that I'm following the God of the universe who is unseen. But what I'm telling you is that my God knows me and He hears me. And I have confidence that He will respond to me. And the implication is that God is on David's side. And because of this, David's opponents should not be surprised when they are treated like God's enemies. If they continue on in their scoffing, if they continue on pursuing worthless things, they should not be surprised when they're treated like God's enemies. We're going to come to that here in the next section. But David is confident that what he is doing is right. In verses 4 and 5, we have an appeal for the enemies to trust God. This is 
unexpected, really. At this point, we would expect David to call down judgment on these people and to pray that God would destroy them. But instead, David makes an appeal directly to his enemies to turn to God. David is much like our God, that he is merciful. And he wants to see these men turn to God. And so he he gives them an opportunity by, by showing them the weight of their sin and seeing the greatness of God. He gives them four main commands in verses 4 and 5. First, tremble and do not sin. Tremble and do not sin. This word tremble is also used in chapter 2. Turn back to there, chapter 2. I'm sorry, Psalm number 2, verse 12. Okay, again, these aren't chapters. These are these are hymns or psalms. So, Psalm number 2, verse 12. Do homage to the Son, that He not become angry, and you perish in the way, for His wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in Him. Do, not, do homage to the Son, that He not become tremblesome, we could say. He, he does not tremble before God. That's the idea of... It's the idea of some anger. In, in Psalm number 17, verse 8, it refers to an earthquake. That you need to tremble before this earthquake. And so David's making an appeal to his enemies to do this before God. They not become angry before God, but rather to, to tremble in fear of His awesome reverence, His awesome glory. And then notice the second part of Verse 4, Psalm 4, 4, Tremble and do not sin. Tremble and do not sin. Acknowledge your sin before the Almighty God. See yourself as God sees you. See God as the Almighty and yourself as a lowly sinner before Him. Stop pursuing the dead gods and recognize the weight of responsibility that you have, David saying to his enemies, before the living God. Tremble and do not sin. The second command is there in verse 4 as well. Second line, meditate in your heart upon your bed and be still. Meditate in your heart upon your bed and be still. When you lay down at night, he's saying to his enemies, when all of the noise of life is quieted down and you are just laying there with just your thoughts, here's what I want you to do, David says. Meditate on how God responds to those who oppose Him. Meditate in your heart about who God is and about what your sin means before Him. Do that. And recognize also that while God is a judge, that He has not treated you as your sins deserved so far. Right Up until this point, God has been merciful to you in allowing you to live on in sin. He's giving you more time. Do you see? His patience is, is, a, is a godly patience. He's wanting you to turn to repentance. But know this. As you lay down in your bed, meditate on this, that His patience will not last forever. But God will judge those who oppose Him. So, you enemies, David is saying, you need to recognize this, reflect on this, and then do this. Verse 5, the next command, offer the sacrifices of righteousness. Offer the sacrifices of righteousness. 
Now it seems as if these men were offering some sort of sacrifices. He could have just said, offer the sacrifices. But instead he says, the sacrifices of righteousness. So it's likely that they were offering some kind of sacrifice, but not the right kind. Maybe they were offering sacrifices to false gods. Or maybe maybe they're offering the wrong kind of sacrifices to God. But here's what David says. Offer righteous sacrifices. Sacrifices that God wants and accepts. In other words, turn your heart. Okay? For us, we don't we're not living in a under the sacrificial law anymore, right? So for us it is you enemies meditate on God's God's patience, God's mercy, God's judgment that's coming. And then turn your heart to Him. Give yourself over to Him in righteousness. Recognize the rightful place of God as your rightful King. Offer the sacrifices of righteousness. And then the fourth command is found at the end of verse 5, and trust in the Lord. Okay, so what David is desiring out of these men who are his enemies and the enemies of God at this point is that they recognize where they stand before God and that they finally turn to Him. That's the idea that trust in the Lord. David concludes his psalm, verses 6-8, through by telling us that there's no greater joy than finding our refuge in God. There's no greater joy than finding our refuge in God. Up until this point, he said, many are rejecting God, but I'm going to trust Him. Many are rejecting God, but I'm going to trust Him. You who reject God, you need to trust Him. And now he turns at the end of the psalm to say, there's nothing greater than doing this. There's nothing greater than stopping our rejection of God and turning in trust to Him. Look at verse 6. Many are saying, Who will show us any good? Lift up the light of your countenance upon us, O Lord. Again, David summarizes their rejection of God. Notice the question that these scoffers are saying. Who will show us any good? In other words, they're putting up let's say, all the false gods up on an auction and saying, who's going to give me the best deal? Am I going to serve you, false god, or you? And what they're essentially doing is putting the true and living God up on the same platform as false gods and saying, who's going to give me the best deal? Who's going to provide for me the most good? And obviously, God would reject that sort of mentality. And He is not like the other gods. He is the only true and living God. So David says, while many people are looking for the best deal from these various gods, what I'm telling you is to do this. The second part of verse 6, trust in God. Lift up the light of your countenance upon us, O Lord. We need to turn to God, the only one who can break us out of the darkness is the one who is light. 1 John 1.5 God is light and in Him there is no darkness at all. There is great joy for those who do turn to God who 
who are turned by God. That's really the idea of verse 6, that He is the light of our countenance. He turns us. And those who are turned, those who have turned, verses 7 and 8, have great joy. Notice how much joy, verse 7. You have put gladness in my heart more than when their grain and new wine abound. David trusts in God because of the joy that he has experienced from following God. And the extent of this joy is more than the greatest of harvests. Even in the time of greatest prosperity, David's great joy is not in the gifts. Gifts are fine. We take pleasure in the gifts. We praise God when we receive great gifts. But ultimately, David's pleasure is in God. He would rather have God than those great harvests. That is, when there's terrible harvests, when there is famine, it's okay because his joy is still in God. His gladness, the gladness that is in his heart, is in God. There's greater satisfaction for God when we don't try to make Him our little servant. As if He has to meet our every request. We just go to Him and and just list off all of the things that we want and we expect Him to, to give them to us. See, when our greatest satisfaction is in God and not in the things that He gives us primarily, when it's in God then the best prosperity in life and the worst poverty that can ever face us will not keep us from the gladness that is in our heart because our gladness is not in the things. Our gladness is in God. And the result of a glad heart, the the result of a a true trust in God, an ongoing trust in God is in verse 8. David says, in peace. I will both lie down and sleep for You alone, O Lord. Make me to dwell in safety. Instead of like the scoffers, the enemies, they're supposed to lay down at night and meditate on God as judge, as God who, will, who is waiting for them to respond. Instead of that, David has already responded to God. He's already turned in faith to God. And as he lays down, he's at peace. He's not meditating in an uncomfortable way like the scoffers, but rather he's at peace with God. He lays down in peace knowing that he has been reconciled to God. So no matter if there is famine in David's life or enemies at his doorstep, he can be confident that God is on his side and that God will protect him. And we can do the same. And why is that? Why can we have peace? Look at the end of verse 8. For you alone, O Lord... Make me to dwell in safety. So, we get the answer to the question in verse 6. Look at the question again. Many are saying, who will show us any good? And if we want to um, humor their question, we would answer it this way at the end of verse 8. You alone, God, will show us good. You alone will make us to dwell in safety. Only God can. Let me leave you with three points of application tonight from this psalm. Three points of application. Number one, your greatest pursuit in life must be God. My greatest pursuit in life must be God. 
Is that the case? Who has your heart right now? I mean, where do you want to be in life? Where, where do you see yourself in a few years from now? Is your, are your dreams revolved around a certain position or a certain amount of money or a certain level of popularity or comfort? Then I can tell you that there will be unrest in your soul until you make your greatest pursuit in life God. But when He is your greatest pursuit, then all the things in this life that happen, the circumstances that come crashing down, or the circumstances that raise you up to a place of of prosperity will not keep you from turning to God. It will not take away the gladness that is in your heart. Your greatest pursuit in life must be God, to exalt God, to know God, to love God, to live for Him. Number two, don't love God solely because of His gifts. Don't love God only because of what He can do. As long as God does these things for me, I will serve Him. That mentality will only take you so far before God is turned into a tool for you to get what you want in life. And by the way, you can turn on the, the TV or the radio and hear lots of preachers that will exalt this sort of idea. God is your little servant. And you want something in life, then go to God. And as long as He gives it to you, He's a good God. If he's not, then maybe you need to try harder or something. It turns God into a personal vending machine if we only love the gifts and not God. It's the mentality that says, I will love you, God, if... Or I will serve you, God, as long as... And then... It turns into, God, because You no longer give me what I wanted out of our relationship, then who has the best offer? What other God can I serve to give me what I want? Who will provide the best good for me? And we move on. And I'm here to tell you on the authority of God's Word that there are no other living gods worthy of your devotion. They are idols. They are false gods. Listen to Ezekiel 36.23. I will vindicate the holiness of My great name, God says, which has been profaned among the nations, which You have profaned in their midst. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when I prove Myself holy among you in their sight. Ezekiel 38.23 And I shall magnify Myself, sanctify Myself, and make Myself known in the sight of many nations, and they will know that I am the Lord. Isaiah 45.5 I am the Lord, and there is no other. Besides Me, there is no God. I will gird Myself. I will gird you, though you have not known Me. Exodus 15.11 Who is like you among the gods, O Lord? Who is like you? Majestic in holiness, awesome in praises, working wonders. And the implied answer is 
No one is like you, God. There is no other God who is like you. No other God who is worthy of our devotions. Our devotion. And as long as we treat God simply as a vending machine, we will not see this and we will quickly leave. We will quickly stop following God when He stops giving us what we want. And that's why we need to have as our greatest devotion, our greatest pursuit, to know God. Because all those things that stop coming, when the money stops flowing, when the popularity is on the decline, when the job is gone, we can still trust God. And we can still be happy in God. Number three, be confident in the presence of God. Be confident in the presence of God. Specifically with regard to our prayer. Okay? But, but be confident in the presence of God. We too often equate God's presence with material blessing. And we do say rightly, you know, when we receive some sort of blessing from God, we say, that was of God. Or God provided that for me. And we should say that. But we too often only say that God's in it when there is our definition of blessing. Let me give you two examples and tell me which time God is there. Five days ago, March 5th, Heath Kufal, a Christian former classmate of mine, hit a half-court shot at the Oklahoma City Thunder game and won $20,000. You think God was with him when he was shooting that shot? Afterwards, he said in his interview, this was not an accident. God was with me. God allowed this to happen. God was with him in times of prosperity. In November, about three or four months ago, Heath's wife, Jenny, also a Christian, found out that she had a rare form of cancer in her appendix. Was God with her at that time? Was God with Heath and Jenny at that time? You see, God is there in both cases, and if we fail to see this, then we will give in to a pragmatic approach of Christianity. That as long as the blessings keep pouring in, then God's with me. But when the blessings stop pouring in and when the trouble starts to come, God's not with me. What David wants us to see, what God wants us to see, that He's with us in both cases. Job said it this way, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. If we fail to see this, we will give into the understanding of their mentality, you know, I must be doing something wrong. If trouble's coming, see, there's no more blessing. The blessing's gone. The trouble's coming. So if the trouble's here, then God is gone. I must be doing something wrong. And David's saying, no, fix your eyes on God, not His gifts. The gifts should only point us to God and cause us to praise God. But don't you see that in times of trouble we still can praise God and that He's still with us. He doesn't leave us. He's always there. Can God not bless you 
in times of prosperity and still bless you in times of trouble in a non-earthly sort of uh, sense? You know, from the world's perspective, that's not a blessing. How can trouble be a blessing? And here's the point. The blessing is the presence of God. That He stays with us in times of good and in times of trouble. Can you not sense God's presence with you at every point in life? And the point that I'm trying to make is that when God is your greatest confidence, when God is your greatest confidence, you will not falter in times of trouble, in times of loss, loss of health, loss of money, loss of friends, loss of job. You will not falter in times of loss when God is your greatest confidence because in Him you rest secure. In peace, you lie down and sleep no matter how much the enemies are opposed to you. That's what, it, that's what we saw last week in Psalm 3. As His enemies are all around Him, He lays down and sleeps knowing that God will protect Him. Job 13.15 Though He slay me, yet I will hope in Him. Though He slay me, no matter how difficult it gets, I will hope in God. My hope is not fixed on the gifts of God. My hope is fixed on God. When the gifts come, I praise God. But when the trouble comes, I still praise God. Do you see? Though He slay me, yet I will hope in Him. In peace, I will both lie down and sleep. For You alone, O Lord, make me to dwell in safety. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for this reminder from David. A psalm that was recorded for the people of Israel to sing over and over again to remind themselves. We can imagine that even during times of exile, being led into exile and being in a foreign land for years and years, that they would sing a a psalm like this and reflect on the trust that they could have in You apart from what apart from the, the gifts, what seemed like a world that was crashing in, they could still have confidence in You. We want to be that way as well. We want to have the confidence of David. And we know that that change in our mind and in our lives comes from a work of Your Spirit. So come upon us, we pray, Spirit, and and change us. Refine us. Help us to see our Father, more clearly. Thank You, Father, for rescuing us in times of trouble in the past. We've seen You specifically do that most clearly in an eternal way by rescuing us from the condemnation that we deserved. But even since then, we've had each of us have had trials that have come our way when it felt like our world was was crashing in and that no one cared and yet You came through for us. And so we pray that You would help us to know Your love more clearly tonight because of the confidence that David had in You and in Your love. Help us not to idolize the things that You give to us. It is so easy to make money an idol, to make things, to make position and popularity and idol in our day. 
And as John Calvin said, that our hearts are just continual idol factories. We are continually making idols in our hearts. So if all those things were taken away and put out of put out of our minds, we would make up other things to put in your place. May you help us to submit ourselves to you and to love you with all that we have. May you change us to be more like your Son, Jesus Christ, who is our example and who is our sacrifice. We pray in His name. Amen.